It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode 39. And we can just jump right into it because I've decided to get rid of the intro. Mm-hmm. So people don't have to wait for 30 seconds to hear the content begin. But I'm joined in studio this week by my cousin Dangerous Dan. We have a special program in store for the episode that's going to come out on Christmas, episode 40. And we will have both my sons, Trey and Caleb, in studio with us to record that episode. And I guess we should start saying when we're recording this, because the one thing I've been thinking about is some of our new stuff Mm -hmm. is probably pretty old by the time people hear this, because we're recording it a couple weeks in advance. Right, yeah. So this episode we are recording on Sunday, November 5th, and nothing... Really, nobody's done anything particularly stupid in the last few weeks. No, wrestling-wise, I just know that uh, Jim Cornette on his podcast did kind of echo our sentiments that uh, Tony Khan is a horrible booker. Yes, yeah, so uh, other than I, I have to give him credit that he's been saying that for um, about three, four years now. One thing that I did notice, uh, and I'm going to make this brief, uh, which would, I, you know, I don't watch WWE anyway, and they just. I let my uh, subscription to Peacock expire because I didn't want to watch it. Um, but they did something stupid, and I think that was to make uh, Logan Paul the U.S. champion. Okay, that was very stupid. They did that at the pay-per-view? Yes, they did. He had oh, They had him beat Rey Mysterio Jr. for the title. Yeah. Why do you put belts on part-timers? I, you know, and I, he doesn't really need a belt. Uh-uh, no. He gets, he, he's already over. Yeah, and that's what I said, and I was going to, I forgot to ask you about what you thought about that before we went on. Okay, I think it's stupid. It's it's very stupid. (laughs) I I had no idea they did that. Well, that was dumb. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, I watched the 15-minute recap of what happens. I'm assuming Roman won. Oh, Roman did win, yes. Uh I I think that they're probably building to Cody Rhodes aligned with Jey Uso. Finally, beating Roman at WrestleMania this well, year. Well, you knew they wasn't gonna unless hang. they can get the Rock. Yeah. If they can get the Rock, the Rock yeah. is gonna wrestle Roman at WrestleMania. Right. Well, I tell you what, if there's still a writer strike, <laughs> well, we might get. <laughs> I guess, yeah. It depends on if the actors and the writers settle. Uh, they, uh, uh, I knew they wasn't gonna hang on L.A. Night. Although he is probably the most over guy right now in all of professional wrestling, but he is. But you know, the the funny thing is, it's like I was telling you earlier. I think the only true star in wrestling is Roman Reigns. Oh, he is. Because when he comes out to talk and whatever, all the fans have their uh, fingers up in the air. You Uh know, we're the ones. Everybody stops. You know, people don't really boo him. They cheer him, you know, out of the building. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, So, I I just think he's the only real star. I don't see anybody else get that kind of reaction when they come out. The fans like Cody. The fans like Jey Uso. Yeah. And some of the, like Sami Zayn will get a, a big pop and a good... But, I've never seen anybody rack like they do no, when, when Reigns comes out. When Reigns comes out, he 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 has the command of the stage. Yeah. He, everybody, you know, looks like a star, acts like a star. Uh huh. So before I go on my rant and we get into the main content here, I did want to kind of go over an update since we're getting ready to record the last two episodes for 2023. Thinking about 2024, I've told you I I would like to do. A couple more podcasts. Right. Mm-hmm. Three to four podcasts a month. So right. My thought was that we would do 40 podcasts next year. Yeah. We would do three episodes a month, except for the months that have that fifth Monday. Uh-huh. And that, we would do four. Okay. To get to the 40. Yeah. 
and then I would produce two written pieces of content for my website as well. Okay. So it would sure. be 60 pieces of content next year, 40 of them being podcast, 20 of them being uh, written blog posts. Okay. Mostly with wrestling between 1870 and 1920. Right. But also including some... Um, I'm going to write a few boxing posts and right. a couple martial arts ones as well. Mm-hmm. But that's my thought for our plan for next year. I think it's really doable. You and I will be doing most of them. Yeah. And we'll get Caleb in when we can. Mm-hmm. Getting Trey to talk more than once a year is probably going to be a bit of a challenge. I am interested, though, to hear him talk about that glacier. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh, yes. And the uh, Alistair Black debut. Uh-huh. Uh, and... <laughs> From his martial arts eyes, he's he like his brother is not a pro wrestling fan, uh, and I don't even think I could get him to sit down and really watch a match. He will uh, watch some MMA fights occasionally, uh-huh. but I, I <laughs> he did watch that Glacier match and that Alistair Black match, and I'm very interested to hear what he has to say from a martial arts uh, perspective. I tell you what, the Glacier, I can't believe they spent so much money on his entrance and spent so much time pushing this guy, and then he comes out and he lays a big fat goose egg. Well, it was, he was so slow. Yeah, it's, he was. it's like watching some of those martial arts movies from the seventies, the kung fu theater and stuff. Oh yeah, huh? that's how slow some of it was, and it's really hard to be do slow martial arts mm-hmm. in this day and age when you've got MMA and so many people have seen it and they right. they know what real combat looks like. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to pull that off. Yeah. And before I go into my rant, I say every single week that we do this. That I'm going to have you talk about your website, and I never do it. So, oh. for the benefit of our listeners, please. Uh, well, this uh, this message is brought to you by uh, Red Hawk Red Hawk Mercantile. Uh, I do have a store on eBay. Um, look it up under uh, Red Hawk Mercantile, and I have a uh, I have a plethora of stuff on there. I've got everything from belt buckles to uh, jigsaw puzzles, old games. Uh, and you know, if I if it's not on there, you can always drop me a message. I procure stuff. You know, I'm always on the lookout for stuff. And he's like, "Hey Dan, I'm looking for a Tiffany lamp. Guess what? I'll look for you a Tiffany lamp. And I tell you what, within two to three weeks, I bet you I have you a Tiffany lamp. There you go. So, uh, but yeah, just visit my website. Look at my store. Uh, Christmas is coming up, guys. I've got reasonable prices. And uh, if you're local, you're in the area, you can also find uh, me and my cousin's booth. Uh, Z, does she go by Z-Lightful? Uh, Z-Lightful Memories uh, at um, Old Time Finds over in High Ridge on Barber Drive. Uh, we are booth 214. 214 or 204. Uh, but we have a lot of Christmas stuff, and we have a lot of uh, vintage and um, modern-day uh, uh, mid-century modern. So, uh, like I said, guys, take a look at us. Thank you. Now back to our regular scheduled program. Yeah, but I've been saying I'm going to let you do the plug. Yeah. And <laughs> the podcast will primarily always be about history between 1870 and 1920. Sometimes we range outside of that. And if there's a particularly something that we discover. So we have reviewed 350 days, which was about the territory days. Mm-hmm because we thought that was important to understand the historical context of pro wrestling. Right. And the other thing is, uh, we talked about the Von Erich movies coming out, the Iron Claw. If we watch that, 
we'll review that for the podcast. I think I think you should say when we watch that. Okay, when we, we watch we are, that. We are going to see it. Well, yeah. at least I will. Yeah, when we watch that, we'll mm-hmm. review it. But... That might the, be one of those Tuesday is, deal things, though. Yeah, this is, this is <laughs> primarily going to be a podcast about pro wrestling history between 1870 and 1920. Mm-hmm. I may occasionally talk about boxing because I'm a combat sports historian. And when I started studying this time frame, I did it because I believed that the professional wrestling in this time frame was legitimate. I knew getting close to 1920 it wasn't, but I thought the stuff in the 19th century, and what I discovered over the years was as long as professional wrestling has been involved, they've been working. That's not to say that most of the matches were worked because... Initially, more matches were contests Mm -hmm. than were worked. But working has been around from the beginning. I was going to say, when I think of... Don't let me forget my rant, by the way. uh, I was just going to interject, and I may be wrong on this, but it seems to me that most of the works came when you had the carnivals travel into town, and they'd say, hey, come on up here and fight our challenger, and if you can last three minutes, get yourself a pig or whatever you know um and i just i I, you know a lot of the works were gambling schemes oh yeah that too so one of them and i think i've talked about this in a previous podcast but one of the more egregious ones and it killed wrestling in these this area i think it was michigan but it could have been minnesota Mm -hmm. it was up, up northern midwest when martin farmer burns was American heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. He and D.A. McMillan pulled a scam, and they were caught. Yeah. It was written about in the newspapers, and it really hurt wrestling in that area for a long time. Mm-hmm. McMillan goes into the town a few weeks before Burns is coming through there, mm-hmm. and just is an obnoxious loudmouth. And I've heard similar stories about Dutch Mantell doing this kind of stuff, uh, Fred Grubmeyer. Mm-hmm. Um, who also made quite the living going around to the carnival or athletic shows and beating the guys. Yeah. Because he was a funny-looking guy. He was tall and skinny, mm-hmm. didn't look athletic at all, but he was a fantastic uh, shooter and hooker, uh-huh. and he would beat these guys. Uh-huh. But I've heard the story about these, the original Dutch Mantel, not the guy that tells the great stories on YouTube. Right, yeah. Not the mustache. Right. I, I've heard these stories before, but... It's because pr- these guys probably all, not all, a lot of guys in pro wrestling probably heard about this over the years and pulled this stunt. So I don't doubt some of the stories because I'm sure they all learned from each other about pulling some of these gambling schemes. Right. Or the people who were inclined to pull gambling schemes learned about it because it was a tight-knit community. Right. There weren't a whole lot of pro wrestlers in the 19th and early 20th century. And... McMillan gets in there early, just makes himself a really obnoxious loudmouth in town. Uh huh. And loses bets on stuff like foot races and arm wrestling and stuff. Mm hmm. To set people up to think this guy's a loudmouth that can't back up what he says. Burns comes into town because he's traveling through town to go to another match mm-hmm. in. You know, I'm pretty sure it was Michigan because I believe the match he was traveling to was in Detroit. Uh-huh. So these are smaller towns in Michigan. Right. And this loudmouth, who's really D.A. McMillan, but he's going by a different name, 
challenges Burns to a match. And Burns accepts. Now, why the townspeople didn't say, why is the American heavyweight champion going to wrestle a three out of five match with this schlub? Right. But they didn't. Mm -hmm. And so they have the match. McMillan, you know, they got people working the crowd. And they bet that McMillan is going to win the first fall and the quickest fall. Well, everybody takes him up on it. Right. And, <coughs> funny enough, McMillan wins the first fall. Then Burns very quickly wins the second fall. Mm -hmm. And so the, fa the fans and the crowd are thinking, oh, now he's going to get his comeuppance. Right. Except for the fact that all of a sudden McMillan gets a fluke pin on Burns and wins the quickest fall. Uh-huh. And then Burns pins him two more times very quickly, but not as quick as McMillan pinned him. Mm-hmm. And then they get out of town. Right. And that's how the fans discovered they had been hoodwinked. And a reporter who was there was ticked off about it and followed them and figured out who they were and reported the whole thing. And that's usually what led to the exposure. They would tick off a newspaper reporter and they would expose the goings on. Before the podcast, we were talking about how the world-class fans, because we were watching an episode of World Class from 85, how they started to turn on the promotion mm -hmm. when they took a local Dallas kid who was a well-known athlete in the community and started calling him Lance Von Erich. Yeah, and all of them like, well, the Von Erichs are lying to us. The Von Erichs are lying to us. Yeah. And I told you, the thing that didn't make any sense to me was that they took a kid from Dallas instead of getting a wrestler from another territory. Right. They took a kid from Dallas who people in the area knew as mm -hmm. an athlete yeah. and started trying to call him something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because the newspapers exposed the Mass Marvel in 1915 mm -hmm. because Sam Rockman had to use a Northeastern wrestler. Uh, Mort Henderson was from Altoona, Pennsylvania. Right. But he kind of was stuck having to do that because of both travel and because... The wrestlers in the Midwest were have been all uh, aligned with Martin Farmer Burns. Mm -hmm. That he and Stecker were trying to replace Gotch with Stecker, so they would not have cooperated with that and sent him anybody. So right, but the newspapers exposed that too. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been sitting here thinking I was going to go into that rant, but let's save that for okay. the next episode. Okay, because I happen to know this is a uh, thing that. Caleb and I do not agree on, mm -hmm. so Caleb can give the alternative viewpoint oh, on that. okay, very well. So, you want to just jump into the part three of the Stanislaus Abisko discussion? Let's do this, yeah. All righty. So, when we ended the last talk, Stanislaus Abisko had lost the world title back to Ed Strangler-Lewis, and Strangler-Lewis had basically held it for the next two, no, actually it was three years. Mm -hmm. And... He had frozen Vladik Zabisco, Stanislaw Zabisco's brother, and Joe Stecker out of the title picture. Right. And some of the promotional tactics of the Goldust Trio, not letting local promoters use their wrestlers on their cards, never letting a local wrestler have a shot at the world title. It had to be Goldust Trio. Or Lewis might defend. Remember I told you I couldn't remember the guy's name from... Kansas, it was Alan Eustace. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, and, Alan Eustace. And Strangler Lewis did defend against him because Sandow had a relationship with the promoter in Wichita. He helped get him set up. Okay. 
but if they didn't have a relationship with the promoter or they were ticked off at the promoter, they wouldn't let that promoter's local star wrestle the world champion. It would have to be one of the Goldust Trio wrestlers to wrestle Lewis. Right. And that offended the promoters who were looking to get have an opportunity to get back at Sandow and Mott mm-hmm. and the trio, mm-hmm. but didn't really have an opportunity with Ed Lewis holding the title because... There was probably no one that could beat him in a shoot outside of Zabisco. Uh-huh. And it was very unlikely that Zabisco was going to try to shoot on Lewis, not knowing what the outcome would be. Right. And at the time, Stanislaw Zabisco was a royal, was a loyal, a royal. <laughs> he was King Zabisco. No. He, he might have been royal. We don't know. He's from <laughs> over yeah. across the East. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he could have been royalty, but... A loyal member of the Goldust Trio, at least he was considered that. Right. Even though Vladik Zabisco was being froze out up mm-hmm. in New York. Well, after Lewis has held the title for three years, it's getting harder for him to uh, draw big crowds. Yeah. Even in the Midwest, in Kansas City, it was normal for them to draw 10,000 fans. And he's having trouble even drawing in Kansas City, Kansas. Well, I was going to say, you know, and and this might be talking out of turn. Um, I watched a, a clip of a match from 1923 with Ed uh, Ed Strangler Lewis and uh, I think it was Gus Sonnenberg. Yes, Sonnenberg was a, a big football star that Lewis put over. And, and and I mean, watching this match, you could just see Ed was tired. He wasn't moving the way he was so I don't know if injuries were catching up with them or if he was just getting to the point where like guys I don't want to do this anymore or and it it could be all of those things Mm -hmm. because you do get tired of being the touring champion I mean that schedule Mm -hmm. from the NWA broke many a strong wrestler Jack Briscoe Mm -hmm. Terry Funk but um they really needed to get another box office draw. Mm-hmm. And Sandow starts looking around for a box office draw, but he doesn't go into the regular wrestling ranks. I mean, the logical person to put the title on at that time would have probably been Stecker. But was, yeah. Lewis was not willing to drop the belt to Stecker. Well, I think uh, they kind of put, uh, they was building up Stecker to put, uh, to take over for Gotch, basically, weren't they? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then. He, that's why he and Lewis had the rivalry in the 19-teens. Okay. So in the 20s, and that's the only animosity that existed between Lewis and Stecker was professional rivalry. Uh-huh. He legitimately couldn't stand Vladek Zabisco. They had had punch-ups in the ring. They, they oh, did not they had like real punch-ups. Yeah. But Stecker, it was just that Stecker was the only true rival to Lewis mm-hmm. for a while. And when Lewis surpassed him, Lewis always kind of had a grudge with Stecker. Oh, okay. That nobody could really explain. And Luthes loved both of them. And Stecker was in uh, a mental health facility when Lu- when Thes met him. Uh-huh. <coughs> and Thes wrestled with him and thought he was the best wrestler that he had ever wrestled. He beat Thes easily. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't been wrestling in five years. And he, he Actually, he beat all four guys that came to, to see him. I was going to say, easily. to beat Thes easily was not no right. easy feat. <laughs> um, and Thes thought the world of both of them. Ed Strangler-Lewis was Thes's idol. But uh-huh. he thought the world of both of them. 
And the only animosity he could see between the two of them was just a professional rivalry. It wasn't like they hated each other. Right. But Dez always, not Dez, Lewis always held a grudge against Stecker, and Stecker always kind of held a grudge against Lewis. Mm-hmm. Just because they were competing to be the top guy. Right. So Sandow <coughs> sees this star football player from the University of Nebraska mm-hmm. named Big Wayne Munn. Who stands about six foot five and is about two hundred and sixty pounds. Big man for back in that Monstrous time. Monstrous for the nineteen twenties. Yes. And after his college career is over in nineteen twenty four, Sandow starts building him up to be a wrestling star. Mm-hmm. Well, actually I think his rest, his football career is over in twenty three. <clears throat> and in twenty four he starts building him up. Uh-huh. And Munn starts drawing huge crowds. Initially, he uses the headlock, which is Strangler Lewis's finisher as well. Right. But then he started, I can't remember if it was a flying tackle or a football tackle, but it was kind of playing on his football background. They did the same thing with Sonnenberg a few years later. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and prior to putting the belt on Munn, uh, Joseph Toots Mott takes Munn to a 30-minute match in Kansas City that draws over 10,000 fans. Oh, wow. First time they'd drawn 10,000 fans in Kansas City in a while. And this is in the 20s. Yes, this is 24 going into 25. Hmm. And (coughs) Sandow makes the decision, I'm putting the belt on Munn to begin 1925. Uh Uh-huh. Lewis nor Mott want him to put the belt on Munn, but it's not for the reasons anybody would think. Lewis was happy to drop the title to him because they knew it was going to be big box office. Right. But even with both Mott and Lewis working with him, who were great shooters, he never was anything more than a performer. Oh, okay. And both Mott and and I keep saying shooter, these guys were hookers. They were skilled submission wrestlers. Uh Uh-huh. Both of them told uh, Sandow, if a shooter or a hooker gets in the ring with him, mm-hmm. they're going to beat him easily. He is not able to defend himself. Right. And Sandow said, do not worry about it. I will only put people in the ring with him that are loyal to us. I gotcha. So, <clears throat> Lewis... I, I sense a double cross. Yes, you do. <laughs> One of the most famous in the history of pro wrestling. Uh-huh. So, Lewis drops the title to Munn Mm-hmm. And he's already got a tour of Europe scheduled. Yeah. So he leaves for his tour of Europe. So it's pretty much up to Mont to be with him all the time mm-hmm. and to protect Munn. Yeah. So if something funny happens in the ring, Mont is going to interfere. Um, and they've got to be careful about how they do this because back in this time, disqualifications, countouts, anything, the title could change hands. Yes. Uh, I, and, you know, I did not know that. Um, and I've been a wrestling fan for all these years. And um, it was because the athletics commission still had a hand in everything, mm-hmm. so the promoters couldn't do what they wanted to do. Uh-huh. But later on, when they organized as the NWA, that's when they changed that. Yeah, and that could effectively prevent double crosses. Because I did see, uh, I was watching a, an old episode of uh, Memphis wrestling, where uh, Austin Idol lost his title to Stan Hansen on a count out. I was like, what, 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 what? You know? <laughs> yeah, because in our day, that didn't happen. But, uh-uh. but back in the 20s, all of that, 
this title still changing hands. Lewis lost yeah. the title in late 20s, early 30s to Henry DeGlane mm-hmm. on a disqualification that DeGlane and them had set up. Oh. It was, he claimed Lewis bit him, but Lewis hadn't bitten. Somebody else bit him back in the thing, and he kind of covered it up with a towel. Oh, and then. And then got Lewis in a headlock and then screamed and showed the teeth marks to the referee, who was none the wiser and disqualified Lewis. I gotcha. Well, that's 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 dirty pool right there. Yep. Yep, that was a double cross. But so since Lewis is going to be out of country, mm-hmm. Sandow only lets Munn wrestle Mont and Stanislaw Zabisco. Uh-huh. And Zabisco puts him over in January and February. No issues. So Sandow's like, I've got him safe until Lewis comes back. They'll wrestle a few more times. And at the end of the year, we'll put the belt back on Lewis. Mm-hmm. After because they year. were they wanted to get as much money out of Munn's run as they could, but Sandow was smart enough to realize the longer I keep the title on him, the more exposed he's going to be to a double cross. Mm-hmm. It's what happened to Dan O'Mahony in the 1930s. Bowser kept riding the gravy train, yeah. and eventually Shickett shot yeah. on him and uh-huh. beat him legitimately. So in April, they schedule a match between Sabisco and and Wayne Munn for Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I think it was April 15th, 1925. And both Sandow and Mont are so confident now that Stanislaw Sabisco is a loyal member of the... that they do not go with Munn to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Sabisco and Munn and... Um, I should have looked this up before. The, it, I believe his name was Martin Bauman. It could be William Bauman. Sandow's real name... No, it was Martin Bauman because William Bauman was Billy Sandow. Okay. That was their real last name. And he just sends his brother to... Billy Sandow sends his brother to oversee the matches that day. Okay. Because they're confident we don't have anything to worry about. Well, they had a big thing to worry about. Oh, okay. Because unbeknownst to them... And it's never really come out yet why Zabisco did what he did. He was paid fifty thousand dollars. We're pretty sure. Oh wow! Yeah, that's that's for a what he did. King's ransom back then. And he definitely he and his brother were very very close, Vladik. Uh-huh. So he probably was not happy that the Goldust Trio had frozen his brother out of the matches in New York because those would have been big paydays. Right. But for whatever reason, he never really shared exactly why he did it. But mm-hmm. $50,000 is like $750,000 a day. So that yeah. was a big inducement for mm-hmm. him. It get my attention. Yeah. <laughs> so they get into Philadelphia, and they have the match. Now, the stories I had heard before I uh, researched it, mm-hmm. and they probably didn't have the sources to contradict it. They probably just went by the stories the wrestlers told them. Yeah. The original story I had heard was Zabisco shot on Munn and pinned him like five times, and the referee finally had to count the pin. Oh. Because the referee was employed by the Goldust Trio. Right. Because he knew what it's the finish not, was going to be. It's not Martin Bauman, it's Max Bauman. Max Bauman, okay. Max Bauman, the younger brother of Billy Sandow, okay. who was William Bauman. B-A-U-M-A-N-N. Okay. So Max Bauman is the guy there, but he shoots on him and he pins him, Mm -hmm. and the referee counts the first pin. Yeah. 
Because he's scared that the fans are going to riot if he doesn't. Right. So they have the intermission. Wayne Munn goes to the back. Zabisco stays in the ring, which was unusual. Yeah, because usually they both go back, take a 15-minute break, and then come back. But he did not trust... Zabisco didn't trust that Bauman or somebody else would not attack him or try to kill him. Ah. So he stayed in the ring. Mm Mm-hmm. And the people that are financing this and backing it is Tom Pax in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. who was closely associated with Jim Londis in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, that was before Sam Muchnick's time. Yes. He, in fact, Muchnick worked for... Pax. For almost 10 years. In the 30s. Okay. So... It's Pax in St. Louis, uh, Jack Curley in New York, mm-hmm. Paul Bowser in Boston, because remember, Curley was the promoter for Flotic Zabisco yes. and mm-hmm. wasn't any more happy that his guy was frozen out of the thing. Right, and he's the one that kind of exposed wrestling. Yeah. Paul Bowser, no, that was Pfeffer. When Pfeffer, Curley Pfeffer. and them yeah, turned yeah. on him. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, Paul Bowser, I said, and then the Stecker brothers. Uh-huh. And the Stecker brothers supposedly put up 10000 and the promoters put up the other 40. So those promoters put up the other 40 that they oh, okay. paid Zabisco. But Zabisco stayed in the ring. Yeah. And Max Bauman came out and was trying to talk to Zabisco, and he just sat in the corner, and every time Bauman would plead with him, he'd just shake his head no. Oh, okay. So Munn finally comes back out. Zabisco pins him again in short order. Mm-hmm. Two straight falls, he wins the match in the world title. Right. 20 Philadelphia police officers come out to the ring and escort Zabisco back. Because they knew. Paul Bowser had set that up because they were afraid somebody would try to kill Zabisco. Yes. So they escort him out with the title, and he gets on a train immediately and gets out of town. Uh-huh. The police stayed with him at the hotel until the train arrived. Oh, wow. Then he got on the train and got out of there. That's they were, how they serious they took it. They were worried oh, wow. that... You know, and some of these guys, some of the stuff they did, you know, you can't be... Dick Schickett in the 30s thought he might be killed when he double-crossed Old Mahoney. Yeah. When he double-crossed Bowser and all them. And we know at the NWA meeting in the 80s, they talked about killing Vince. Oh, yeah. uh So some of these guys were not, you know, reputable businessmen at the... So um, he gets on the train, he goes, gets out of there. Right. And so within a couple of weeks... They have a match on the same day. Oh. So in Michigan City, Michigan, Wayne Munn defends his title, and this is where it gets really kind of kabuki-ish. Uh-huh. Because of the political power of Billy Sandow and the Goldust Trio and Jack Curley and Paul Bowser and Pax. Uh-huh. Zabisco's title win over Munn is recognized in some areas and not in others. Oh. So, Strangler Lewis is still the world champion in Illinois and Michigan, even though Illinois is right next door to St. Louis, where Tom Pax holds court. Yeah. And Pax had a strong control over the National Wrestling Association Championship. Now, just to be fair... When has Illinois ever done anything right? <laughs> I mean, you know. But and, anyway, and, go and, ahead. <laughs> right, and, and not recognizing the winner of the world title match? Yes, exactly. You know, Pennsylvania and New York 
recognize Sabisco as a champion. Uh huh. So Munn is still recognized as a champion in Illinois and Michigan. <clears throat> Zabisco is the recognized champion of Pennsylvania and New York. Mm-hmm. They have their matches. So in Michigan City, Michigan, Ed Strangler Lewis wrestles Big Wayne Munn, and that match draws 15,000 people. Oh, wow. Great crowd. Yeah, it is. In St. Louis on the same day, Joe Stecker wrestles Stanislaw Zabisco mm-hmm. for the world title at the SLU field. Mm-hmm. And they draw 13,500 fans. Wow. And I think this was April 29th, about mm-hmm. two weeks after the uh, switch uh-huh. in Philadelphia. And Stecker, of course, beats Zabisco because that was the plan all along. And Zabisco uh-huh. got a payday of $53,000. <laughs> and then Lewis, of course, wins from Munn. Uh-huh. But now the title's divided. Right. And the title would be a big mess for the next three years until mm-hmm. Lewis and Stecker agreed to a shoot in St. Louis that reunified the title. Yeah. And we'll, we may talk about that in a future episode. Okay. But to finish Stanislaw Zabisco's story, so when he drops the title to Stecker in 25, he's 45 years old. Yeah. And he basically retires after that. I don't know how many promoters would have booked him. When you double-cross somebody, yeah. because the thought is always if they double-cross them... They're going to double-cross They might double-cross us. So they did not double... They did not really book him that much. Uh-huh. He came back in 1928 for a match with the Great Gamma, who he had wrestled in England in, like, 1910. Uh-huh. And it was a draw then. Uh, Gamma beat him in, like, 30 seconds. Oh, wow. And, and, and I mean... He was 48, and I believe Gamo was 48, too. I believe him and Gamo were born the same year. Yeah. 1880. Um, but, and then he makes a brief six-month comeback in St. Louis mm-hmm. in 1937 when he's 67 years old. And oh, my it gosh. Yes, it doesn't last very long. So, that's pretty much the end of the career of Stanislaw Zabisco, uh-huh. except... He gets the role in a 1950 movie with... Uh, Richard Woodmark called Night in the City. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it, right. I'd highly recommend it. I'll have to check it out, yes. You know what? Have you ever seen Paradise Alley with Sylvester Stallone and oh, yeah, it's Lee a re- Canalito? It's a, yeah, it's an old Sylvester movie. Yeah, yeah. 76, I think. Yeah, uh-huh. One of these days we got to review that, because that's the first pro wrestling movie I ever saw. Okay, yeah. Paradise Alley. You know, that's not the first one I saw. Uh, I, guess, I think the first one I saw was... Um, That horrible one with uh, Zeus in it. Oh, um, and Hogan. Gosh, no holes barred. No holes barred. That was god. That was god awful, and it led yeah. to some god awful wrestling matches the following summer. Yes, it did. Um, that was god awful. The first two wrestling movies I actually saw were before that. Oh, it was Paradise Alley, which I saw in the late seventies or early eighties. And a movie called The Mad Bull, which is not that easy to find, but it stars Alex Karras. Okay. It was a TV movie from like 72 or 73. Uh-huh. And that was the... I saw that 84, 85. Okay. I actually saw it before No Holds Barred came out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll have to review... Yeah. Uh, we could review Mad Bull, too, but Mad Bull, they kind of stole the, the storyline from Night in the City. Oh, okay. Because Mad Bull is working matches 
but his dad hates it because his dad was a legitimate Greco-Roman champion. Oh, gotcha. Well, in Night in the City, Stanislaus Zabisco's son is a wrestling promoter, mm-hmm. but they're working the matches, which he hates because he was a Greco-Roman world champion right. like he was in real life. Mm-hmm. And he's got this young protege that he's teaching how to wrestle, and I told you they end up getting into a, a fight in with Mike Mazurki, mm-hmm. and that's the penultimate, well, it's not penultimate, it's the ultimate fight scene in Night in the City. Yeah. And it's amazing what Zabisco's still doing in his 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, by the time they started working with Harley Race in the 60s, uh-huh. Stanislaus was over 80 years old, and Harley Race said he could not wrestle anymore. He never trained Race. Uh, it was always Vladik Zabisco, and Vladik Zabisco just put him in a hold. And, yeah. Uh, he knew submissions because they both were Greco-Roman specialists uh-huh. who learned catch wrestling. So uh, Vladik knew some submission holds. I'm sure Stanislaus did too, but they didn't use them that often. They were more yeah. shooters than hookers. Uh-huh. But that's pretty much the end of the career of Stanislaus Zabisco after Night in the City. He lives in Maine with his wife, who dies before he does, and he spends the last several years of his life on the St. Joseph farm that his brother and his wife own. Mm-hmm. And there they meet a young Harley Race, who lived, uh, he was from northwest Missouri, yeah. and he worked for the Zabiscos on their for- farm in, trying to remember the, because it was outside of St. Joseph, Savannah, Savannah, Missouri. Oh, okay, yeah. And... Stanislaus Zabisco dies there in 1967. Mm-hmm. <coughs> He's actually buried in Maine with his wife in Sacco, Maine. And Vladik Zabisco, who was 11 years younger, mm-hmm. dies the following year oh, okay. in the 70s. Stanislaus in the 80s, Vladik is in his 70s. Yeah. And Vladik, unfortunately, kind of has the reputation as the other Zabisco. Yeah. Because he wasn't quite as good as Stanislaus, you and, know. And if they froze him out, he was he was never visible, you yeah. know. Yeah. So, well, and he had a great career. Mhm. Um he was just frozen out of the title picture for a while. Yeah. But he was still a big star in the 20s and 30s. Mhm. Um and it kind of reminds you of Vikings. Remember when Halfton's going to go with Bjorn to the Mediterranean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to Harold. <coughs> and Harold's always wanted to be the king of all Norway. Yeah. And so you've got this very famous brother who is going to become the king of all Norway. And Halfton tells him, you know, my ambition is not to be the brother of the king of all Norway. Right. He said, I want to go see different places <laughs> right. and raid and all that. So. Vladik Zabisco was kind of in that position. He was the brother of one of the greatest pro wrestlers of all time, and mm-hmm. he was very good in his own right. Yeah. But he was never going to be Stanislaus. Well, and that's where, you know, me and you kind of differ. I always thought that um, Jerry Briscoe was better than Jack. Yeah. And you think Jack is better yeah. than uh, Gerald, but, you know. I think I, Jerry Briscoe is very good. I mm-hmm. just think Jack was better. Yeah. But. But at once the, again, at the time we're watching it, though, mm-hmm. Jerry might have been better than Jack at that point in time because Jack was almost forty. He had had a lot more injuries. Yeah. Um, the times we were looking at them, you're looking at Jack when he's between thirty-eight 
and 42 years of age, because I'm pretty sure Jack was born in 42. Mm -hmm. So Gerald's four or five years younger than him, ah. and he probably does look better at that yeah. point in time. But, but Jack Briscoe in the early 70s mm -hmm. was incredible. But what I was getting to the point was, who did they always put the title on? Jack. Jack. You know, Gerald was always seen Gerald like was the, the brother of the world the champion. champion. Yeah, <laughs> he was the second run. I thought that was kind of was dirty, but you know, that's I'm not and a wrestling. They, and they did so put good. the junior heavyweight title on Jerry. Yeah, but no. that is not considered the same as the NWA. No, right. not at all. So, but and it is kind of tough when you're the brother, but mm -hmm. you're the brother that isn't the the top. Yeah, guy. Mm -hmm. And I've always told you, when it comes to the Von Erichs, yeah, oh, yeah, Kerry had the great body and he had the look. But David, but the best wrestler was David by, by far. far. Yeah. And so if you're Kevin, you're the third banana. Yeah. With the the because you got two brothers ahead of you uh -huh. that are you know. And you know, as as Kerry had the physique and everything, but you know, Kerry was actually Fritz's favorite. Yeah, that's. Fritz thought he was going to make him bigger than Elvis. He told Bill Watts that he was going to make Kerry bigger than Elvis. Was that in the uh, redone convenience store? That oh wait a minute, not Bill Watts. I'm thinking of Jim Crockett was the one that worked yeah. out of the convenience store. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's why they say one of the reasons Vince won the war so handily was Vince was one of the few business-minded people. As mm -hmm. Crockett grew and became a national company, yeah, they were still in that convenience store office running it like they were running three states right? as opposed to a national promotion. Mm -hmm. And Vince would go out and get real business people and extend, expand in real business ways. Yes, yeah, exactly. we got to talk about our reviews here yeah. this week, mm -hmm. too. You got anything else you wanted to add or... No, I'm, I think I went off the rails enough already today, so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm still being, you know, I'm still feeling the sting from, you know, last month when I got admonished for <laughs> being off, going off the rails. Oh, too. when you and Caleb were all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you, it's, it's not an easy thing here, but <laughs> we got to do what we can do. Right. Pulling up the... So you picked both of the matches we reviewed this week, and we went all the way back to 1913. This is the earliest professional wrestling match known on uh, film, mm -hmm. and it's eight minutes of what looked to be a much, much longer match. Yeah, probably, like you said, probably a two- or three-hour yeah. match. And it was a Greco-Roman match from Czechoslovakia, and it was Gustav Fristensky who, and we'll have the uh, links in the show notes at kensermanjr.com slash episode 39. Uh, we'll have both matches uh, linked in that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But I actually put the, because the uh, notes underneath on the video were in German, I put yeah. it in the Google Translate. Okay. And it turns out Gustav Fristensky was a bodybuilding champion. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to assume that was the gentleman with the long pants and the mustache because yes. he looked like he had a bodybuilder's physique. Right. And I'll say that the taller, heavier set guy who was wearing the kind of singlet top but then took that off during the intermission mm -hmm. uh, was Joseph Smedjkal, which is S-M-E-J-K-A-L. So I apologize mm -hmm. if I butchered the names. Mm -hmm. But I said when I looked at that, I thought... Well, I think they're shooting, but there was a couple times where they got out a couple of the near falls. 
Right. That I was like, that was pretty loose. Were they working with each other? Mm-hmm. But I think they were shooting because that was typical of a real long draw back in those days. Mm-hmm. And I think the match did end in a draw so because they would wrestle for a long time and mm-hmm. the, the official would give them an intermission, even though the intermissions were usually only after a fall. Yeah. Just so maybe they could recover a little bit and see if we could get to this match over with. Right. But it didn't. And I'm saying that that was probably a three-hour match because I think they captured all the action and just cut out everything else. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have probably been three hours and we'd have been bored to tears in between those few near falls and everything. Right. <clears throat> and you could see no holds below the waist. This was a typical Greco-Roman match. Mm-hmm. Trying to use the half Nelson to turn, which yes. was very common. Uh-huh. That was used quite a bit. And the match ends up being a draw. Yes. And so I, th- I think that they were shooting, is mm-hmm. what I believe. Um, but, you know, that wasn't always the case. But in that match, I believe they were shooting. Yeah. The, you know, so the, what were your thoughts on that before we get into the other thing? And then we were going to talk about something that you sent me that I was like, yeah, I've noticed a couple of those things too. But Okay. Uh, well, you know, um, first of all, I you know, it started off, I was like, oh, this is 19-teens wrestling because they were on a platform, an elevated platform, no ropes. Right. Just... That's how... And I love that because that mm-hmm. is how most of the matches before the mid-teens in the United States were. It was mm-hmm. always on an elevated stage or platform. Mm-hmm. That's why they'd have matches in opera houses a lot of times. they yeah. just put a mat or a carpet on top of the stage yeah. and they'd wrestle on that. And, um, you know, going from... Uh, looking from the Greco-Roman style of wrestling, I was really uh, impressed because these guys weren't in here. They weren't using closed fist. They weren't using open hand slaps. They were actually using wrestling moves. Um, now, like you said, if it was three hours long, I probably would have went over and watched something else. But for eight minutes, it kept my attention. And like you said, a couple of the near falls where he kicked out easily, I was like, oh, that's that's WWE. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, a um, couple of those spins, I was like, are they working this? Yeah. Um, um, but, but I think that they were sweaty enough that you could have done that. Yeah. And like I said, but like I said, uh, for the eight minutes, and it being the earliest known wrestling uh, tape out there, I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah. You I know, too. it was a good eight minutes of my life that I'm glad I invested in it. So. Yeah. But if it was three hours, we wouldn't have liked it. As oh, much. hell no. No, no. <laughs> so we talked about doing Strangler Lewis versus Scott Sonnenberg from 1928. And maybe we'll do that when we're going to do another match that is a little longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also looked at a match from 1940 in Los Angeles. And this was between Cowboy Carl Davis and... Terry McGinnis, and it was uh, it's a film because in the 30s and 40s you would go to the movie theater and you'd spend about five hours there because yeah. you would watch a cartoon and a short like the Three Stooges or Laurel and Hardy or any of those mm-hmm. short clips, and then you would watch a serial. So they would have like 15 chapter serials. Flash Gordon, Batman, S E R I A L. Tarzan. Yeah. Yeah, Batman, Green Hornet, Mm -hmm. Tarzan. There was one called the Green Archer. And you'd have these 
people, if you went to the theater every week, which some people did, mm-hmm. you would see that over 15 weeks, you'd see the whole serial. And then they'd have a B film and an A film. Mm. So you'd spend about five hours there. Some of those B films, like the Bowery Boys and stuff like that, yeah. were, were, in my opinion, were better than the A film. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd see the Bowery Boys, and then you'd see, uh, oh, what's that movie with? Uh, not Fatal Attraction. It's the Fatal Attraction of its day. Oh. Um, but any yeah, uh, a- any type of A film that you would have had uh, back then. Back so, in the 30s, 40s, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Gosh, I can't remember the name of that film now. It's going to drive me crazy today. I'll remember it two hours from now. Yeah. <laughs> and But they'd also have like newsreels before the cartoon, or they'd have stuff like this, this wrestling match that was filmed in, in Los Angeles. Called and, Through the Ropes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it would be a cut-down version of the match as well, but you know, or you'd have highlights of the World Series or highlights of the Joe Lewis fight, although I said... Several of the Joe Lewis fights, they probably just played the three minutes of the fight because it was Lewis hitting a guy and the guy hitting the floor. It was like the old Mike Tyson fights. Yeah. Yeah, Lewis, particularly in rematches. Mm-hmm. Rematches didn't go long when you were fighting no. Joe Lewis. <laughs> you might take him 15 rounds in the first fight, but then he figured you out. And, yeah. And the second fight, you usually got knocked out in a round or two. <laughs> but this was Cowboy Carl Davis and Terry McGinnis. And in comparison to our first match... You can already see that it's much more of a work. Uh, I saw like three wrestling holds in this match and a lot of punching <laughs> and forearms. And um, it was pretty fast moving. And the obvious heels and baby faces. Uh-huh. So it was much more what you would have expected in a match from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a whole lot of gymnastics. So. No, there was not. It, uh, you know, and that's what I told you. What I, I texted you. It's like there's not a lot of wrestling. This maybe a couple of snapmares, but it's just them wailing on each other. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of uh, raking the uh, boot across the eyes. Yeah. And stuff like that. Um, the thing that I that irritated me most about the match wasn't the uh, brutality and the 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 no wrestling. The thing that got me was the commentator. The commentator. Oh, Terry McGinnis is going to show Cowboy Bill Davis or Carl Davis what it's like to be branded. Yeah. I was like, there's no branding iron in there. Now, if you had Terry Funk in there, yeah, it probably would have been a branding iron in the ring. And some of the announcing was terrible. I don't know if the announcers... Because I've said, when you were a fan of wrestling in the 80s, Mm -hmm. that was... A lot of times a bad thing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. People would look at you like you were an alien, that you were some kind of weirdo. Oh, yeah. And right. I think it was because they thought people that liked wrestling had bought into it and were being duped and were idiots. Yeah. You know, because it, there was a big taboo about being a wrestling fan back then. Mm-hmm. That's gone. Now that everybody knows, yeah, it's all It's all work. predetermined yeah. fake, yeah. It's not like anybody cares about that anymore, so people don't really care. It's just like, oh, you like wrestling, it's no different than, oh, I like the Vikings, or well, I like... Well, it's, it's because people now watch it for, okay, we know it's we know it's predetermined, we know it's going to be at work, but the stories... Right, is it entertaining? That's, exactly. That's the big thing. And AEW and, is not. And a lot of times, the answer to that is no. No, exactly. But so now I'll say Vince, something nice about AEW, 
WWE is just about as bad. It's better under Triple H. Mm -hmm. It's been better recently. Yeah. But they don't do hardly any wrestling, and the wrestling they do is forgettable. Yeah. W or AEW does much more wrestling, but a lot of the wrestling is bad or embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And you'll get you'll get a jewel in the midst of a pile of crap. Yeah. Uh huh. Whereas WWE, unless you watch the pay-per-view, you're not going to see any good wrestling matches. Uh-uh. The matches are just filler between people talking to each other. Exactly. And the thing I hate about both shows, human beings do not talk to each other like this. No. Uh -uh. They do not act like fourth graders on the school playground, which is what almost all of these wrestlers do. You're not yeah. my friend. Or you said this about me. Or yeah. I'm ticked off because, you know, you didn't follow me on Facebook. Or It's like, adults don't do that. Unless you're Children Drew McIntyre and you just kick him. Yeah. <laughs> kick him in the face. Right. <laughs> but, you know, the the wrestling is pretty bad. So there's not the stigma anymore that there used to right. exist with that. <clears throat> but these announcers, sometimes you would hear them. It was almost like they were embarrassed to be calling pro wrestling yes. this was just something they were doing until they did something better right. so they'd make these little side comments about the grunt and groaners uh -huh. or you know make fun of it while they're calling it mm -hmm. and because it's film you probably are getting people that normally don't call wrestling as a thing because right, yeah. there's no commentary with it at the stadiums and that mm -hmm. But television did change that. At least yes. you had more professional announcers once it went to television. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, that's like, you know, I mean, I remember sitting in my living room on Sunday mornings watching WCCW and listen to, you know, the, the commentators on there, you know, and yeah. then uh, watching uh, then on Saturday nights, World Championship Wrestling, listen to Toy Shivani. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, we got into Raw with uh, Jim Ross and... Uh, Jerry Lawler, who I just thought great announced team, a great announced team, the best one since Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. Yeah, you know it was just uh, I tell you what, it went from so low to so. High. <laughs> and you know when you really think about it, mm -hmm. so few places had good announcers. Yeah, exactly. You know everybody talks like it's great. We had Larry Matisic in St. Louis, so we were spoiled. Yeah, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they would get Jim Ross in Mid South. But mm -hmm. the best announcer in Mid-South was Bill Watts explaining everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The rest of the announcing was not sure that Sure wasn't great. Lance Russell. Right. Uh, Lance Russell was unique in Memphis. and uh -huh. um, But when you think about it, the one thing I think WWF did better than most in the 80s and 90s was the announcing. Yeah. You know, you had Ventura. You had... Bobby and Gorilla. Mm -hmm. You had um, Jerry Lawler and Jim Ross. Mm -hmm. They're announcing, and then the last twenty years, it ain't been that great because you got Michael Cole and a cast of characters with him. Yeah, Cole and the King was okay, but it was never Jim Ross and no, uh -uh. Jerry Lawler. And that's why some of those matches from the nineties are so memorable because you have that announced team. Going back and forth, enhancing the match that you're watching. My God, King! He just killed him. He bent him in half. <laughs> and speaking of the King, yes, I wanted to reference the text you had sent me earlier in this week because you had watched an old Jerry the King 
Oh yeah, uh, it was a promo. It wasn't even a match. It was an argument he had with Jimmy Valiant. Mm -hmm. It's from '78, and he was using homophobic slurs towards Jimmy Valiant, and it shocked you. Yeah, it did because I wasn't ready for that. I was thought you know, wrestling maybe wasn't family, but it definitely wasn't. And I don't know, Ken. Maybe back in '78, homophobic slurs were just a thing that you put up with. I, I don't know. I was seven. At the time, right. you know, I just... Well, and it's been removed from so much, mm -hmm. it is still shocking. So, I remember some of the heels doing the race-baiting crap mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s. But, I was I told you I was watching uh, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling from early 83. I'm sorry, you had to watch that. And Flair was still a heel. Uh-huh. And... There's this African-American young wrestler who he was supposed to wrestle. Mm -hmm. He did wrestle him eventually. But Flair is down cutting a promo, and they bring his opponent out, who's this young African-American, and he says, the world champion doesn't wrestle guys like this. The world champion hires guys like this to drive his car or wash his car. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. It just hits you how racist that statement was. Yeah. Because you don't hear that kind of nonsense. And uh, you might in a film when they're trying to make somebody a bad person. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, that is not part of the popular culture anymore. You're not going to see that stuff. No. And when you do see it or hear it, it's like, oh, my goodness. I remember being at work 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the person who uh, oversaw the custodial services uh, team. Mm-hmm. Gets up and says, oh, you know, I need to get some of those Spanish people in here because they really know how to clean floors. And me and one of my co-workers looked at each other like... You can't that say that? That was the most racist thing I think I've heard in years. Exactly. First of all, he meant Hispanic, not Spanish, because yeah. he was talking about people from Mexico and South America. Uh -huh. And number two, um, my dad is half Mexican. Ernest Charles yeah. Diaz, my my grandfather, came from Mexico in 1917 from mm -hmm. San Miguel de Allende. My step-grandfather. My dad is half Mexican. And my dad is not genetically predispositioned to clean freaking floors. Right, right, exactly. I said it a little stronger back then, but we are trying to keep it clean. for uh -huh. the, Right. But I, I believe the word I said, there was an F word used, but I don't believe it was freaking at the time. Ah, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. And... But I was just shocked that anybody would say something like that in today's... And this is 10 years ago. Yeah, uh-huh. I was just shocked that somebody would say something 2014, 2013. Yeah. Yeah. And when it was brought to that person's attention, they were very apologetic. But I still don't think they really got... Well, Ken, you what, probably thought you were going to kill him. I mean, you know, you're a pretty well-put-together young man at that time. Well, and this was 10 years ago when I was in my prime, and I was hot. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, so when you hear it, it is quite shocking. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. But that was a common practice back in those days. The thing I think is the most shocking part of that one is mm -hmm. Lawler was the face, and yes. Valiant was doing a heel turn. Uh huh. And he used a homophobic slur. Two or three times. Three times. Yes. Um, and it it's shocking today. Probably in 78, 
people were probably less shocked by it because they probably heard that a lot more in society and everything. Uh -huh. But today it's very shocking. Yeah. And, and, and in that respect, I could understand why people have a problem watching stuff that was filmed in the 70s and 80s mm -hmm. and god forbid the 30s and 40s yeah because of some of the racial characters that you have in those well i had a student that didn't even realize he was doing something that was uh so stereotypical mm -hmm. uh, because i teach taekwondo it's korean martial art yeah the young man who's doing it is of asian descent mm-hmm but he starts doing a caricature of what he thinks a Korean person would say. Oh. And he did 20 push-ups. And then I told him, if you ever do anything like this in that, this class again, mm -hmm. I am not going to be as tolerant as I was of it today. Right. This has no place in this class or in society anymore. Right. If you don't know what was wrong with that, let's sit down and have a discussion about right. it. Right. And he goes, no, I thought I was being funny. I said, that's not funny. No. I said, and if there was anybody here of Korean descent, they would have been so insulted by mm -hmm. what you just did. Now, taking that into effect, um, unfortunately, one of our shows that we watched when we were kids was The Three Stooges. And, oh, yeah. There's and some pretty stereotypical stuff there's in There's some that. stereotypical But you know... At the time, we thought it was hilarious, and now I look back at that and go, "Wow, we laughed at that. That was pretty insensitive of us yep. to do that." Yep. But is it still funny? Sometimes it is. But it. But I it, could understand why no one would want to watch that. Exactly. You know, and it's yeah. You see it now. It's like, ooh, yeah, ouch. Well, yeah. You know, it's just like any. You know, it was like, um, I don't know if you ever seen the movie Django Unchained. No. Um, well, it has Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Well, that's so, one of the good reasons why I would not have seen it. Well, I was... I, was, I didn't even watch Titanic where he drowned. Yeah, well, I I was dating a girl at the time who wanted to see the movie. Oh, okay. So, Say no more. Yeah. But I was very uncomfortable in that movie because of the rampant use of the... Inward. Now I know it was set back during Civil War times, but, but still, still, yeah, you know it's. Uh, but to hear Samuel and, L. And, Jackson, and, and here I am, who listens to gangster rap. Yeah, a lot of the songs I listen to, I can't sing. Right. Um, but I don't like it. I would prefer that it not be right. in there. I would prefer the songs didn't have mm -hmm. that. And I don't like movies. If you've got a movie that. There's a lot of racial slurs and stuff. It's going to have to be something I really want to see for me to sit through right. and put up with it. Well, you know, New Jack's... Because it's distasteful. I don't care. It's art, and art is sometimes going to be distasteful and mm -hmm. challenging and that. But I don't have to look at the art if I don't want to. So it has to be... I love NWA, so mm -hmm. I'm going to listen to their music... Even though I can't sing to a lot of their right, songs. Right, exactly. I'm still going to listen to it. And they're singing about their lived experience. It does not bother me. Right. You know, what they mm -hmm. say. Right. Because they're singing about their lived experience. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I'm going to go watch a movie. Now, I'm going to watch Straight Outta Compton. Yeah. Uh, that movie I watch. But, and I'm sure that there's a lot of use of the N-word in that film that... 
Uh-huh. I'm just going to have to put up with it because I want to watch that movie. Right. About NWA and the formation and everything. But I'm not going to watch Django Unchained because it's not something that really I would be like, oh, yeah, I really want to see that. Mm-hmm. And then I had already heard, somebody had told me that they wore the N-word out in that film. They did. And so I was like, well, yeah, that, that makes it even easier for me. Uh, I think I told you talking about films. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been in martial arts for thirty years. Yeah, you know, I've had to unfortunately be involved in some pretty violent situations. I didn't hurt anybody, and nobody hurt me. Yeah, but I was involved in some pretty violent situations throughout my career, mm-hmm. and that, and I turned off three hundred because it was too violent. Oh, now actually, I did watch it, and I've heard lots of people that they say, "Oh, I love three hundred. I'm like, I turned that film off because it was too violent. Yeah. Um, well, I tell you, just from the historical aspect of it, and plus, uh, one of my mom's relatives, uh, his actually name was Leonidas. So I was like, hey, <laughs> check this out. <laughs> yeah, I watched the first part of it, and then when they they get into the first couple battle scenes, I'm like, yeah, this is a little too much. Now, how accurate was it? Have no idea. Well, I mean, it's accurate in the fact that... Um, 300 Spartans held off 10,000 Persians. Yeah. Um, but they were also dead to the last man, so. Yeah. Um, they So one of my, I cannot, so if you, I don't like Leonardo DiCaprio, mm-hmm. and I really can't stand Tom Cruise. Yeah, me neither. But one of my favorite films is Last Samurai. But I'm going to tell right. you that's because that's a Ken Watanabe film, uh-huh. and Tom Cruise is just in it. Yeah. And... They're sitting there, and he had told them the story about Thermopylae. Mm-hmm. And they're getting ready to go into, which is basically pretty much a suicidal charge on this position, because yeah. the Imperial forces that they're fighting with are now armed with machine guns and stuff, and these guys still have samurai swords. Yeah, and strong armor. And he's always, uh, Katsumoto's always talking about a good death. Mm-hmm. And he said, what happened at Thermopylae? Because he talked about the 300 uh-huh. that held off the 10,000 Persians. He said, what happened to those 300 people at Thermopylae? <laughs> Tom Cruise's character says, dead to the last man. He goes, ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then they charged the position and Katsumoto was killed. Oh, I just spoiled the movie if anybody was going to watch that. Uh, well, I think it's been around long enough that if he's going to watch it, he watched it by now. Yeah. Um, so I've already spoiled the movie. I might as well spoil it for you. Uh <laughs> Tom Cruise doesn't get killed, so. Well, that's enough reason for me not to watch it then. Yeah, it actually, it's a fantastic <laughs> movie. I had the boys uh, watch it as part of history. Uh huh. So. Oh well, I think we covered both the matches, and we've covered some of the distasteful things that go on in Peru. I think that's why Peacock. They've cut some stuff out of shows mm-hmm. for that, and then others they just put a warning up <coughs> yeah. in the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. So, and I like the fact that like BritBox will do that. They'll say, you know, this show was shot during times when attitudes and everything were different. Different, yeah. Well, um, like Benny Hill, right? Because you you don't want to just completely cut off entertainment prior to 2010. You know, yeah. there's a lot of good mm-hmm. art out there. Just realize what you might be coming across when you're watching it and I can't blame anyone who says I'm not watching that because I don't like the way they portray me or my people right if that's your decision I completely respect it because 
<coughs> there's some really distasteful stuff out there. Well, I mean, even in Benny Hill, when he would uh, do the uh, Oriental Gentleman. Oh, yeah. And uh, Jerry Lewis used to do the same yes. thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, and so maybe... When you're a kid, I don't think it makes the same impression on you mm-hmm. when you get older and you're like, oh, that's just horrific. Well, when you're 10 years old and you're watching Jerry Lewis with the fake teeth and the glasses, <coughs> you know... To you, that's funny. You don't understand the you don't racial have enough impact. So, right. You don't have enough social awareness to know why that's that way and mm-hmm. what's wrong with it and everything. Yeah. But <coughs> I will say that, um, and I guess we'll close up on this here. Um, yeah. Now I forgot what the heck I was going to say. Um, it was about something we were going to review. What are we going to review? Oh, we're reviewing Glacier and yeah, Glacier, yeah, uh-huh. and Alistair Black. You know, for the we next still one. we still haven't, and um, you know what? If we can fit it in next podcast, and it might take the uh, year out on a high note, is we still need to uh, review the uh, Hard Times promo. Oh yeah, let's do that instead of because Alistair Black was a good match, but yeah. instead of ending on a downer, let's we'll show them Hard Times. Okay before the podcast <clears throat> and then we will that will be the last thing we review for the last podcast for this year okay that sounds good. times because yeah. um you know we, we've discussed it before i'm not sure if that's what dusty Rhodes wanted to do when he got out there he had an idea where he was going he always did and but i think he just did that off the top of his head and he went with it and i tell you what it was one of the most impactful promos i've ever seen in my life yep I still remember that. I, mm-hmm. I saw that. Was I in my? T- I was in my teens when I saw Hard mm-hmm. Times. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's better than any of that Midnight Rider stuff he did. Yeah. <laughs> Everything Dusty did was not gold. No. That that's what I, we should end with. I, I okay. can't remember what my thought was. You get used to that when you get to my time of life. Oh. The um, and I just lost my thought, Trina. I'm talking about Dusty Rose. Everything he didn't do was... Thank you. So, we have a tendency to look back when we started becoming fans through rose-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. So, everything that went on in the St. Louis promotion was not gold, even though I'd like to think it was. Mm-hmm. Everything that went on in world-class and Mid-South was not great. Yeah. And everything that happened in the WWF in the 80s was not all garbage. Right. I did not like most of the 80s WWF because I found it to be cartoon, comic, not even comic book. Because comic book, they're superheroes. Yeah. Cartoon. You know, silly violence, not interesting or exciting violence. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I always said, you know, I didn't really care for WWE at that time frame. I love Bobby. I love Gorilla. But uh-huh. There was some good stuff they did. When you go back and you watch some of the prime time wrestling episodes, mm-hmm. some of the angles they set up. Brody Piper was my favorite. Yeah. Paul Orndorff was fantastic in the ring. He could have been anywhere. Yeah. And been a top star. Mm-hmm. So everything in WWF in the '80s was not bad. The only and they put on the two biggest events with WrestleMania one and WrestleMania three mm-hmm. of the '80s by far. Oh yeah, absolutely. that Texas Stadium show in world class doesn't touch those. Two oh events. no, not at all. You know the only bad thing about being a heel 
Piper Orndorff in the WWE during that time was unfortunately you got a big blonde goofball as your champion. Yes. And they weren't ever going to... Bulk bogus. You suck, pal. Yeah. And they just, you know, they weren't going to be able to get out of his shadow. You know, you would think after all these years Mm -hmm. that I could appreciate the fact that Hogan was such a big box office star. But I cannot. No. He couldn't wrestle. He was an annoying comic book caricature. And if he opened his mouth, it was likely going to be a lie. Yes. Well, that's even to this day. Yeah. I just, I never got or liked Hogan from the time his career started to the time his career ended. Me neither. I was never a Hogan fan ever. Mm -mm, Me neither. The best stuff he probably did from a wrestling standpoint was in the AWA. Uh Uh-huh. But Vern didn't know how to use him. So I can't completely blame him for that. Vern didn't like big muscular guys. Right. That's why every time he beat Nick Bockwinkle, Vern Gagne found a reason to take the title back off right. of Right. It. it was always a fluke yeah. where Hogan didn't get the championship. And it cost Gagne his promotion. Mm-hmm, it did. So he paid the price for that. But I just, I never got Hogan. And in comparison to Flair, I just thought that he was a goof. He's, but he, does, he can't hold Flair's jock. But everybody liked him. Your brother, oh, who God, I loved, yeah. thought the sun rose and set on Hogan. I can't remember how many arguments we used to have. Yes, I know. We'd be talking about Hulkamania and how great Hogan was and everything. And I'd be like, Mike, how can you like this guy? Yeah. He couldn't wrestle a lick. Exactly. He punched, body slammed, leg drop. Yep. That was his matches. But Mike thought he was the greatest. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely a big fan base out there that liked Hogan, but I was not one of them. Right, me neither. Uh, you know, me and you... You're still bogus to me, and you always will be. You know, we were kind of the the anti-fan. We were always more of a like the heels more than we liked the baby faces. Yeah, you know, that that is the case. The Von Erichs, obviously, um, I was huge fans of theirs, so they were baby faces, but other than them, mm-hmm. and DiBiase when he was in St. Louis, yeah. well, I mean, was a I big think Piper I fan. always tended, I was a huge Piper fan, I liked Orndorff, uh-huh. I was rooting for them over T and Hogan in WrestleMania 1. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I liked Piper even after he turned into a good guy, but I always liked Piper. Uh-huh. I liked the Horsemen. Yeah. You know, I just, I tended to gravitate more towards the heels. Because yeah. I found them more interesting. Yeah, as I did too. And, you know, that's why I said that's why when, you know, when Macho Man first hit the scene in WWE, he was a great heel. And, uh, you know, and in the NWA, I liked, well, I tell you what, really at the beginning I didn't care for Flair that much. I thought he was kind of a loud mouth. I didn't like him when he was coming to St. Louis because I thought he was a loud mouth idiot. Yeah. But and the more I saw him... Right. The more he grew on me over the years. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my favorites tend to be... I did like Magnum T.A. He was a fiery baby fan. Yeah, he was. Uh, Magnum T.A., I, I tell you what, at the time but he came to the shovel, I was a, I was a fan <laughs> of... Geez, oh, Fox is putting on the Rams versus the Packers. Why don't we have pillow fights next? I tell you what, we're going to go to CBS here quick. So. Yeah. <laughs> So let's end this podcast so we can get into our, our football watching. Okay. So on the next episode, we're going to talk about Stanislaus Abisko one last time for this year because he was involved in a Christmas night fiasco 
that we'll talk about. Okay. We'll have Trey and Caleb here in the studio, and Caleb and I can debate what I was going to rant about today. Uh-huh. Um, preview, it's one of the reasons I don't go into Walmart. and this I wasn't in Walmart when this happened. But uh-huh. the, the thing I'm going to rant about is why I don't go into Walmart anymore. Oh, okay. If I can absolutely help it. I went to Deerberg's yesterday and got everything. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And then um, we will finish with a review of... Yeah. We will finish with a review of... Glacier in his first match on TV versus Big Bubba Rogers. The debut, well, it's not the debut of Alistair Black because that went like 15 seconds, but it's yeah. like the second or third match for Alistair Black on NXT television uh, where he takes on Kona Reeves and then Hard Times. Yeah. That's Hard Times. Baby, that's Hard Times. Yeah. <laughs> so until next time, stay safe. Enjoy your wrestling if you still watch it. And for the rest of us, the UFC will be on next Saturday. (laughs) Peace out, everybody. Good luck.